Okay, welcome back to Rafford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Letter from Birmingham Jail by written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, all right, let's pick up where we left off on the previous episode. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, quote, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? End quote. The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that, quote, an unjust law is no law at all, end quote. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, su substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? Thus it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, for it is morally right, and I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances, for they are morally wrong. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey but does not make binding on itself. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if on its face it is, excuse me. Let me try that one more time. A law is unjust if it is afflicted on a minority that, as a result of being denied the right to vote, had no part in enacting or devising the law. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama which set up that state segregation laws was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent black people from becoming registered voters. And there are some countries in which, even though black people constitute a majority of the population, not a single black person is registered. 
Can any law enacted under such under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Sometimes the law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there is nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade. But such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. And so I think I'll take a second to to reflect on the paragraphs that we just read there in the opening of this episode. And when Dr. King points out the just and unjustness within laws, I think that that is something that is. Uh, that that concept or the philosophy of it being just and unjust laws is something that is very counter to mainstream thought patterns when it comes to laws and when it comes to policing and criminality in general in this society. One of the things that you are often told is that uh, the concept of... Uh, and Dr. King sort of uh, touches on this here a little bit. But uh, when it comes to the concept of something like uh, if you do the crime, you do the time or when it comes to uh, things like somebody may do something and somebody will say something like throw throw them in jail, throw away the key, throw them underneath the jail. Uh, there's this in this society that we live in. There's this unquestioning of the criminal justice system. There is this unquestioning of the punishments that are doled out by the criminal justice system and the laws that exist in the criminal justice system. And I think a lot of that comes from people being uh, uneducated and uninformed as to how these laws got created or got put into the legislature or how many of these laws exist and how many of these uh, ordinances and things of that nature exist. And also when they're applied and when they're not applied. Uh, and who they're applied to and who they're not applied to. And I, I think that when you lived in a time such as Dr. King is referring to, when you had things like segregation that was made legal, things like women not being allowed to vote that were on property that was made legal, these things that were more overt, overtly inhumane and unjust laws, that it becomes more likely that people are questioning those things. It becomes even easier or more simple to question those things because of the overtness of the unjustness that exists in those laws. However, when we fast forward to the times that we live in now, a lot of the unjustness that exists within the laws and that exists within uh, statutes and ordinances are a lot more covert than they once were. And it takes a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more of an effort. It takes a little bit more of a struggle to challenge those, the covertness that exists in the unjust laws now. Uh, one of the first things that comes to my mind is the crack cocaine to powder cocaine uh, sentencing. And this is not to say that the sentencing that was given to powder cocaine was just because I do believe that addiction should be treated as a health issue, not a, cr a criminal issue. But when you uh, just uh, deal with the situation as it is the realities that exist now that addiction is treated as a a criminal issue one of the things that was unjust in the way that it was treated as a criminal issue is that drugs or substances that were more likely to be used by people of color had a harsher penalty that was 
uh, inflicted upon them or that was uh, set to them. And during the time in which that happened, there were uh, voices that were speaking about how crack cocaine and powder cocaine were just as damaging to the body. One was not more damaging than the other. And how the 100, it was 100 percent more time you got for crack cocaine than you got for powder cocaine. And uh, there were voices talking about how that was not just. And as time has unfolded, we have seen how that has been one of the laws that has been uh, repelled. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that's also important about understanding the the society that we live in is that there has been regular there has never been a 10-year period in our society at least dating back the last hundred years where the federal government or uh, state governments have not looked back and said okay some of the punishments that we doled out 10 years ago or 20 years ago were too harsh we have to adjust those things or we have to change those things and uh, I think that uh, all in all, the the main thing I, I think that I take away from this and I hope people take away from this specific passage is to question the justness of laws and to not just accept that since something is uh, deemed to be illegal, that it it's it's just that it's illegal. And I, I and also one of the things that Dr. King points out here as well is he speaks about how his his constitutional rights are being violated and that the law is being used to assist in the violation of those constitutional rights. And that gets us to uh, back to the place of these laws and these statutes and these uh, ordinances that exist in our society are not there to uh, keep people protected, to keep people safe. They are there to uphold an order. And now it is a true fact that in upholding the order that there will inherently be some people who have safety from that order existing. But because this order is uh, rooted in racism, rooted in capitalism, rooted in exploitation, there is also groups of people who are uh, marginalized and subjugated based off of that order. And when people begin to try to, and historically when people have tried to struggle against that marginalization or struggle against that uh, subjugation, those laws have been used in unjust ways to uh, limit that that uh, the the effectiveness, the efficacy of that of the struggle that is being waged. And so, uh, those are just some of my initial thoughts from uh, that reading. Uh, to go further in uh, oh shit, what was I about to say? Okay. Uh, to, to go further on that, uh, I think it's important to uh, to go further in questioning the legitimacy of laws. It's important to uh, consider where what institution is subjecting us to to these laws, and uh, to consider what where where its authority is derived from, but also. It's it's imperative to consider that there are laws that are are beyond the realm of the state. There are laws that we are expected to uh, follow that aren't being given to us by the state. There are uh, like social expectations, and there are, are certain cases, both in terms of law in the state and these and other examples that. We come across laws that are unjust, and 
I would say that Dr. King's ideas here are essentialist in that they, I think they would assert that, uh, well, they do assert that a law that is unjust is not a, is not a law, uh, that any law that, that falls short of, uh, upholding justice is, uh, is not a law itself and that we have a, a duty to disobey them. And when we talk about unjust laws, uh, we should, we should consider what the law was, what the state was, was created to, to protect. It was created to uphold the status quo, to protect property. Um, it, it, our, our state values property above any property rights above any kind of civil rights. Those, those will always take, uh, um, have preference. Uh, and the consequences of this is that often unjust laws will put people into situations where if, if we call, uh, a crime if we define a crime as breaking a law where we we come into circumstances where people have pressure to break these laws and uh that's criminal jetting by by ipso facto uh, and laws that pressure people uh based on their their being underprivileged to become criminals those those laws are unjust and they're not laws according to these to the to this idea back to it i hope you are able to see the distinction i am trying to point out in no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rapid segregationist. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I, I submit that an individual who breaks the law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice as in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar. Cadnezer, on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practice di civil disobedience in our nation the boston tea party represented a massive act of civil disobedience we should never forget that everything adolf hitler did in germany was legal 
and everything the Hungarian Freedom Fires did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure, had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable con conclusion that the black's great stumbling block in the, his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice who constantly says I agree with you in the goal you seek but I cannot agree with your method methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by a mythical con concept and who constantly advises the black to wait for a more convenient season shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection i had hoped that the white moderate would understand the law and order understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the black passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open, where it can be seen and dealt with. Like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up but must be open with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light, injustice must be exposed. With all the tension its, its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. In your statement you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence but is this a logical assertion isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery 
Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God-consciousness and never-ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that, as the federal courts have consistently affirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. Okay, I think uh, some of my first thoughts from from that passage, specifically from a letter from a Birmingham jail, is the the whitewashing of history or the mythological myth uh, mythologicalizing myth myth mythizing I don't know it's a word for that that I'm not catching right now but the the reframing of history that makes it seem as if the marches or the protest or the demonstrations that Dr. King was a part of and that the SELC his organization was a part of that there were no what people may deem to be violent actions that took place around them uh that's not something that is historically accurate that is something that is you know talked about in history books or talked about in a history channel or that was sort of you know mainstream there's 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 two versions of histories in my in my opinion there's uh history that is sort of told from a uh History told from the people who experienced it. History told from the people who have uh, researched it. And that is a history that is has a, a full spectrum to it. It has a full perspective to it. It's not one. It has multiple vantage points to it. Uh, it, it doesn't frame any individual person as this all this hero or this villain. It doesn't frame any in particular time as this. Uh, golden era, this golden age, what it does is it tells the good and the bad of the time. It tells the good and the bad of a person. It tells the things of the per of a person that uh, their ideology or what their beliefs were, and it also tells what their actions and what their uh, what the things they actually did were. And I think that that is the type of history that is uh, rarely spoken about or that is rarely talked about or that is not put into the mainstream. And in that history, it's known that when Dr. King had marches and held marches, that the demonstrators, for the most part, may not have engaged in what some people would deem to be violence. I wouldn't uh, deem these things to be violence. But the people who were witnesses or the people who were in the area, they did uh, engage in what some people may deem to be violence or people may call violence. In Birmingham, when uh, dogs were let loose on people and water hoses were sprayed on people, there were people who, who threw bricks and people who threw rocks and people who uh, reacted seeing their uh, their their neighbors being reacted to seeing their neighbors being brutalized in ways that somebody may not deem to be uh, peaceful or may not deem to be, excuse me, nonviolent. 
but part of the reason that some of these specific moments in time gained the historical precedence that they gained was because of those uh, reactions that community members had or that people who were witnessing these things had. Uh, you can't you can't remove from any of these moments any action that any uh, specific set of people may have took part in uh uh, during these moments. So uh, what I'm saying is that th this is much as this is important as it was for people to march and to uh, not try to fight the police when they got sprayed with water hoses or when they were arrested or when they were assaulted. It was important for people that threw bricks or that people that threw rocks or people that did react to those things or people that did struggle when uh, arrests were being made because all of those actions is what culminated to getting some of those changes that uh, were made. And it's no way for any person to say uh, the which things could you could remove and the same actions could still happen. And and again, I think that that is a part of the. Uh, the uniqueness of some of these specific moments in time, whether it be uh, the Boston Tea Party, tracing back to the Boston Tea Party, whether it be when labor's uh, labor strikes were happening and labor unions were being put together and police were being implemented to try to stop them, whether it be uh, slave revolts, whether it be uh, in the women's liberation uh, movements and some of the uh, actions and things that have gone on in there. If you fast forward it all the way to Ferguson and uh, L.A. in 92, the, the truth of the matter is that all of these historical moments when uprisings took place and rebellions took place and uh, revolts took place, uh, every action that anybody involved in individually or collectively in those things, uh, every action that anybody took was important in uh and in, in, in furthering the movement that was surrounding those uh, surrounding those actions, surrounding those uprisings, surrounding those uh, uh, revolts and those rebellions. And so in here, when Dr. King points out that uh, blaming the marchers or blaming the people protesting for violence that took place after their marches or after their protest uh, is 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 a mistake uh, i think that that's something that we have to continue to uh, make part of our uh, our arguments now and make part of our philosophy and our ideology and in our thought pattern now that uh, you don't blame the people who have been victimized for the way that they react to their victimization you don't put the responsibility on the victim to uphold a certain type of uh, conduct after they've been victimized the responsibility has to be put upon the person doing the victimization to not victimize people and and i, I do think that that is something that is uh, becoming more of a relevant uh, talking point and that is something that people are beginning to uh, understand more now is that you don't uh, and, and to again I think one of the things that's important is that has been the the case historically when it comes to protests and demonstrations is that there is no way to police the actions of of uh, people who are subjugated and marginalized to the point in which they take to the streets. Once you have gotten people to that uh, to that area, to that place or to that point, uh, it has to be understood that the actions that they are taking are not. Are not should not be viewed in the. Uh, should not be viewed as their individualistic actions or not be viewed as actions in that moment. And they should be viewed as. 
uh, actions of of a collective moment in time or should be viewed as actions of of of, of collective issues uh, as opposed to being put on the, the individual people in that specific circumstance. And, and I sort of talked convoluted some of these uh, talking points in here, trying to touch on a few different things at once. But I hope the, the point that I'm trying to get across is essentially that when you do things like uh, inflict segregation, when you do things like inflict slavery, when you do things like inflict police terrorism and mass incarceration and racial injustice onto human beings, there is going to be a, a natural and organic reaction to those things being inflicted upon these people. And there will be a set of people who their natural and organic reaction uh, may be to try to rise to a what some may deem a higher consciousness in the way that they uh, try to struggle against those things. But there will also be people who uh, speak the same language as the oppressor or speak the same language as the exploiter or the marginalizer. And that has to be something that is uh, understood when marginalization and exploitation and subjugation is being perpetuated. And when people are being killed in the streets, there should be an understanding that at some point, these bodies that you continue to pile up are going to manifest themselves in buildings being burned. At some point, these uh, lives you continue to uh, traumatize is going to manifest themselves in stores being looted and manifest themselves in, 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 in arson and manifest themselves in, uh, in all types of things that uh upset the mainstream order or upset the uh uh the the city order uh as the order in these communities are con constantly and continuously uh being upset by some of these issues it's easier to worry about though the issues the the violence that might occur when people resist against oppression than it is to uh, bring about changes that actually address the oppression that lead to lead to uh, these crises um, when it's it's easier to to focus on on put all the focus on looting and and rioting and maybe and maybe property damage or theft, but there's real reasons why these things uh, come to fruition. People are put in desperate circumstances, and they they're taking people's lives away. So the, why why should there be so much attention on what property damage might be done or theft might have? might occur out of uh, reaction to people seeing uh, their community members' lives being taken away from them. Okay, and that brings us to the end of this episode of Rock for Reading Daily. I think we probably got maybe one, one more episode, maybe one or two more episodes uh, to go for to finish up this reading of letter from Birmingham jail and then we'll do a reflection episode on the entirety of the uh, things presented in the 
this reading that we're doing here. And so I want to encourage people to please go back and listen to previous episodes of Rafa Reading Daily. Uh, up to this point, we've read Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mami Abdul-Jamal. We read Race Matters by Cornell West. Then we read Citizens, Cops and Power by Steve Herbert. And then we read a essay on civil disobedience by Henry Thoreau. And then after that, we read Angela Y. Davis's Women, Race, and Class. And now we are currently reading Letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr. And again, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present people the opportunity to begin and to further their journey on the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And we keep these episodes, uh, try to keep these episodes between 40 to 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, so that way people can have the opportunity daily to listen to these episodes. And so also people People can go back and listen to previous episodes multiple times in a day without feeling overwhelmed. And again, we do these readings and take time out from reading to try to articulate in each of our own perspectives what it is that we are reading because we don't want to just be arbitrarily taking in this information or just reading something to say that we've we read it we want to be able to read something uh be able to comprehend it and then as we read it as we've read it and comprehend it be able to take the information that is being presented in these pieces of literature and add them to our uh, education when it comes to police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. We want to be able to take concepts that are being presented or philosophies, ideologies that are being presented and uh, learn ways that we can articulate those things uh, to other people who may not be familiar with some of these concepts or ideologies and philosophies. And we want to be able to take things that people are, have written about their experiences with some of these issues and find ways that we can uh, use those experiences with to deal with the issues in Rockford, Illinois and in Winnebago County. Uh, and so I hope that as we were uh, challenging ourselves to uh, uh articulate in our own words some of the concepts that Dr. King is is presenting in this writing. I hope that you are also uh, challenging yourself to uh, articulate in your own words and from your own perspective and your own experience some of the things that Dr. King is uh, bringing up in these writings just as well as with all of these other readings that we've done here. Uh, so if you're listening to this and there's more episodes out in the future, please listen to the uh, to those future episodes of Rafa Reading Daily. Listen to the past episodes of Rafa Reading Daily. And we'll be back tomorrow with a new episode. We outside.